Meet Dana. She's 35 and has been dealing with digestion issues for years. She has gas, bloating, and lots of abdominal discomfort. And her bowel movements fluctuate, where sometimes she has urgency, has to run to the bathroom, and it's diarrhea. And then other times she feels backed up and it's hard to go. And when she does go, it kind of looks like pellets. She has seen tons of gastroenterologists and had colonoscopies and endoscopies, and they always show inflammation. And so she was diagnosed with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. The doctors that she saw didn't have many answers, just that IBS tends to be a lifelong issue, and she could take extra fiber for constipation, emodium for diarrhea, and things like Gas-X for when she feels bloated. She's used all of these a lot. But she just keeps cycling back and forth and back and forth. When Dana came to see me, she told me right off the bat, "I have IBS. I know I have to live with it, but I'd like you to help me to eat better so that I can hopefully get some relief. But I understand there's no cure." And you guys, I hear statements like this almost every day in my practice, and this is actually part of my mission for creating this podcast. Yes, we may be dealing with chronic issues, but just because there's not an all-encompassing medication out there, it doesn't mean that we can't get to the bottom of the issue. When the issue is chronic, there's a lot of things that are at play, which is why it's rare that there would be this one magic medication that's going to take care of all of the symptoms. However, there's tons of things that we can look at. I knew that I had to dig into the root of what was creating Dana's IBS and show her that it doesn't always have to be a mystery, and that we can solve it. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me. Before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health, now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Tappeler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Dana, and today I wanted to talk about IBS in more detail. It's one of my specialties in the practice, and I want to show you guys some of the many underlying reasons why IBS develops, and even more importantly, how we could get to the bottom of it and heal. And while it may seem like a mystery, you will see that when we address it from all angles, it really isn't, and we can resolve it. So, just to define some terms, IBS means irritable bowel syndrome, and the symptoms can be across the board. Things like gas, bloating, stomach pain, urgency, diarrhea, constipation, or the alternating between both of those. And conventionally, doctors like to have a diagnosis, which then puts people into a box, and then we see what medications are available for that diagnosis. And with some diagnoses like IBS, there is a whole host of symptoms, and if they can't find a solution that they fit into the box of those symptoms, that's how people get the IBS diagnosis. But the way I like to look at it is looking at it from a whole body perspective, and not look at what the actual diagnosis is, but what the body is doing and where things are out of balance. Because if we find that, oftentimes the diagnosis or the diagnoses can and will resolve. So, in order to put all of this together, we need to first understand the workings of the digestive system. So when we eat food, I know a lot of us don't really think about it much past the time where food goes into our mouth, right? A lot of times we think, okay, it goes into like some black hole. But really, when we eat food, 
we chew the food and our saliva actually has enzymes in it. So that starts the digestive process. The food then goes down into our stomach and in our stomach, we're supposed to have acid called hydrochloric acid, which starts to break down the food further. And also that acid acts like an antiseptic. So if there's certain bacteria or pathogens that are getting in from our food, the acid will kill those off. Then the food will travel from our stomach into our small intestine. And here, our body's going to produce enzymes in the pancreas. And then those enzymes get into the small intestine to further break down the food. And then we also have to break down our fats. And the way that works is through our bile. Our liver is what processes bile and that bile is stored in the gallbladder. And then the gallbladder releases a little bit of bile as needed based on how much fat we eat. Now, the reason why we need both enzymes and bile is that fat needs to be emulsified. So think about it this way. Imagine that you have a glass of water and you put a tablespoon of oil into that water. What's going to happen? The oil is just going to sit there on top, right? It's going to be this big glob of oil sitting on top of the water. But if you were going to take that glass of water, cover it, and then shake it up, what's going to happen is the oil is going to disperse. And instead of it being this big glob, we're going to have these tiny little spheres. So it's much easier for the body to digest the small little spheres of fat because then the digestive enzymes can get around each sphere so we have a lot of surface area versus if we have this big glob of fat sitting on top of the water, we would need a lot of enzymes and it would take them hours and hours. And so when we eat so that we don't have to jump up and down after every meal, that's why we have bile, which then comes in and emulsifies the fat so that then the enzymes could get around it better and digest it. Make sense? And so in order for things to work well, we have to make sure that we're digesting things well and that all of these processes are working, that we're chewing the food, covering it with saliva, that we have enough stomach acid so that we are digesting and breaking down the food further and it's used as an antiseptic so that we also have enough digestive enzymes that the pancreas produces to digest the food further in the small intestine and we have enough bile to emulsify the fats. Now, additionally, some of you may already know that we actually have both good and bad bacteria that live in our intestines, and that's called our microbiome. And ideally, when we're born as babies, we're completely sterile, and then we accumulate bacteria. You know, if it's through a vaginal birth, then we get the bacteria through our mother. And if it's a C-section, you know, unfortunately, we get a little bit of a different type of bacteria. But over our lifetime, that bacteria kind of balances out. And ideally, we're supposed to have some good and some bad, and they're supposed to live in balance together. However, if we are exposed to certain stressors or if we eat foods that are high in sugars or if we're exposed to environmental toxins or maybe we take antibiotics and even taking antibiotics once for some people can wipe out some of the good bugs. And then there's also other medications like NSAIDs. So these are things like Advil or steroids. Those also destroy some of the good bacteria. And for most of us, we've probably have taken antibiotics or maybe NSAIDs or steroids, and we've all had sugar here and there. So it's really, really common to have this skewed balance where we have more of the bad bacteria and not of enough of the good. And then what happens is that when the good bacteria depletes, we then can also have yeast overgrowth, which is a fungal overgrowth. And when we have more of the bad guys than the good guys, that is called dysbiosis. And really that's just a fancy word that says not living in harmony together. And so then what happens is when we're eating food, 
if we're not digesting that food very well, and this is really common because we, as we were just talking about, you need the enzymes, the stomach acid, the bile, and due to lots of reasons from stress to eating bad foods, to environmental toxins, to having weaker adrenals or weaker thyroid function, some of the digestive processes may not be 100%. So maybe our acid is low or our bile is low. So our food is not going to digest completely. And there may be some recognizable proteins in those foods. And so as it goes down through the intestines, now we have these bacteria. Now what the bacteria do is they actually ferment the food. So if we have more bad bacteria than good bacteria, there's gonna be more bacteria that ferments the food. But then there's another issue that can happen. When we have a lot of overgrowth of these bad bacteria or yeast, which is a fungus, our immune system is really smart and it knows and it says, well, wait a minute, there's too many bad bugs here. Let me go and try to attack them. The problem is that because the issue often is chronic and we have tons and tons of bacteria, we actually, it's, they're microscopic, but if you were to add up all the bacteria and put them in a bag, it would weigh three to four pounds. That's a lot of bacteria. So it's a lot for the immune system to handle. So the immune system tries to attack the bad guys, but because it's more chronic, it can't really get to it. And the bacteria are really smart. They're really adaptive. So what they do is they say, oh, wait a minute, someone's trying to get at me, right? Someone's trying to kill me essentially. So they form what's called biofilm. So think of those as almost like shields around themselves. And it's almost like, you know, when you go to sleep and you wake up in the morning, even if you brush your teeth the night before, you know, there's still a little bit of a film on your teeth if you kind of brush your tongue against your teeth. So it's the same kind of thing. Biofilm is that thin film that then tends to harden over time. So if you didn't brush your teeth day after day after day, that biofilm is going to harden. And so the same thing happens in the intestines. The bacteria are going to create this biofilm so that it could protect itself against your immune system. Because if you think about it from the bacteria perspective, it's warm inside your intestines, it's moist in there, there's food, right? It's the perfect place. It doesn't wanna go away. And then what it also does is if you imagine that this bacteria sort of lines your intestinal lining, and now it creates these biofilms and these shields, and then they can actually dig themselves further and further into the intestinal lining so that they protect themselves more from the immune system. And so the more bacteria that you have and the more that your immune system tries to attack it, the more they dig in there further and further until they can actually almost poke through the other side. And what that's called is leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And of course, these holes are very, very small. You can only see them through the microscope, but under the microscope, it almost looks like Swiss cheese. So it's literally just intestines that have holes in them. And you have to remember the lining of the intestinal tract is really, really thin because it's supposed to allow good things to get in, right? For them to get absorbed. That's why it's very easy for things to open up and for those tight junctions, which are the cells that hold everything together for them to open up. And as they open up, that's what creates the leaky gut. So at this point, if we have these leaks and on top of that, our digestion is not 100%, which is just so, so common, then there's recognizable proteins in the food that's coming through. And ideally what's supposed to happen is if you have the enzymes, the bile and the stomach acid, food should be broken down completely so nothing is recognizable. But if there's recognizable proteins, as they go down through the intestines and they see a hole, they might come out through the hole. And what happens is our body's really smart 
and it knows we're kind of like a tube within a tube. So food doesn't belong outside the intestines. It only belongs inside the intestines. So when that piece of food with a recognizable protein accidentally seeps through that leaky gut hole and gets into the bloodstream, the body says, wait a minute, you don't belong here. You're food, but I don't recognize you because you don't belong here. So you must be bad. And it treats it like a virus or bacteria or some other type of pathogen. And then it's going to form an antibody against it because the immune system says, well, wait a minute, if you don't belong here, you must be bad. I'm going to attack you. So then what happens is the next time that you eat that food, the body recognizes it and says, wait a minute, I remember you. You were that bad thing that came in before. I'm going to attack you again. And that's how food sensitivities get created. So food sensitivities, you guys, are really different than food allergies because food allergies are things that we're often born with and it's something that happens immediately. So we may eat, you know, a peanut or a piece of shrimp and that will cause us to have constriction in our airflow and people could go into anaphylactic shock. Sensitivities are very different and sensitivities happen in the way that I just explained because of the intestinal overgrowth and because of the leaky gut and because of the lack of some of the digestive juices that we need to break everything down. And then once that happens and the body attacks it, the more of this food that you eat, the more there's going to be an attack. So when we look at it this way, we see that the issue is that we have the leaky gut from the infections that we have. And then that creates an immune attack because things are not being digested. And then from a symptom standpoint, when you think about not having enough of those digestive juices, right? So if you don't have enough stomach acid or enough enzymes, what's going to happen? Food's just going to sit there. So that's where people can get the gas and the bloating and the distension, or sometimes people say food sort of feels like it's a brick in their stomach. And then of course, when that creates air and gas, that can cause the trapped gas, which creates a lot of that pain and discomfort. And then also some of the urgency that can go along with it. That also then creates inflammation and the inflammation can then make it so that our bowels can alternate from diarrhea to constipation. So when there's a lot of inflammation, the body wants to evacuate and things come out, but then things slow down and back up and it's harder to move it along. So then we get those pellets and the constipation. And then again, we can eat an offending food. Our body doesn't like it, recognize it, attacks it. And then the body kind of purges everything and we get the diarrhea. So... When we look at a lot of these IBS symptoms, the issue is that there's a breakdown in these pathways, right? So we're either not digesting, we're missing some of these digestive juices, we have this overgrowth in the bacteria that creates extra inflammation. And then on top of that, we then have these food sensitivities. So even if we never reacted to things like gluten or dairy or beans or even, you know, carrots, it could be really any food. When we have these digestive infections that create leaks, then we create these food sensitivities because they seep through. And now next time we eat a carrot or dairy or gluten or whatever that food is, the body's gonna create that inflammation and cause us pain or some other type of discomfort. The great news is that we can look at all of these things and figure out where within those pathways we have breakdowns and where things are not working. And we have testing that can help us figure this out. Now, conventionally, most common tests are endoscopies and colonoscopies, and that's what Dana had. And while I don't wanna discourage anyone from getting those tests because it may show some potentially serious issues, for most of us though, it shows the what, but not the why. 
For example, it might often show inflammation like it did in Dana's case. And while that's good to know, if we don't know why the inflammation is happening, we don't really know exactly how to fix it. So it doesn't really result in bringing us any closer to any resolution. Now, when we look at things functionally, we're not looking at the structure, but we're looking at how the organs are working together and how the systems are actually functioning. And then we have tons of wonderful tests that can look into the whys and why things are not happening the way they're supposed to. So in Dana's case, what we did is a DNA-based stool test, which looked at all of the different bugs in her intestines. Now she had overgrowth of candida, which is a type of yeast, and also a few different bacteria. So based on this, we knew there was dysbiosis, which tends to be where the issue starts, like I was explaining before. She also had very low levels of a marker called elastase 1, which shows that the pancreas is not producing sufficient digestive enzymes. So that was problem number two. She had an elevated level of zonulin, which is a marker for leaky gut. So that was problem number three. And as I was explaining, when we have leaky gut, which is often due to intestinal overgrowth, we're going to have food seep through and then we become sensitive to those foods. Now we could do a food sensitivity test to see what's coming through. But in Dana's case, she didn't have a lot of extra money to spend on many different tests. So we know that she has leaky gut from the stool test. And we know that if we did a food sensitivity test, it will probably be positive to a lot of things because when you have leaky gut, a lot of things are gonna be seeping through. So what we did was we removed some of the big offenders that can often be an issue for many people. So those are things like gluten, dairy, soy, corn, and sugar. While we did that, we also used an antimicrobial combination to kill off the yeast and the bacteria. I like using herbal combinations because they could be customized to both antibacterial and antifungal properties and even have antiparasitic properties. Um, because when you use things like medications, say like an antibiotic, and again, I'm not against medication. I think there's a time and place and sometimes we do need to use them, but oftentimes antibiotics are gonna be just for bacteria or antifungals are gonna be just for fungal. And typically they're pretty strong, so it might be hard to use together and they just may be too harsh on the system. The other nice thing about herbs is that the herbs are very gentle on the good guys. So we used a combination formula called Citramnesia, which combines grapefruit seed extract, clove, and berberine. And then a formula called FC Cidal, which contains things like olive leaf, thyme, and podarco. And these ingredients are potent antimicrobials and were great at eradicating dysbiosis and those bad bugs. Now, while doing this, I put Dana on a broad spectrum pancreatic digestive enzyme with betaine HCL called Digestimes from Designs for Health to support her digestion and the low elastase one marker that we saw on her stool test. Now, when someone starts the killing off process of the bugs, they may experience what we call a die off reaction. Now, this is because the bugs like to live inside your intestines, like we were saying before. It's moist, it's warm, there's food, so they don't wanna go away. So you wanna think of it sort of like there's a war that goes on. They're comfortable in there, and then you go in and you try to kill them off, 
they're going to try to protect themselves further and fight back. And so that war that happens initially can sometimes create a little bit more gas or bloating. And then for some people, it maybe cause a little bit of fatigue. Sometimes if the overgrowth is really strong, it may even cause almost like flu-like symptoms. It's typically not that strong, but it does happen for some people. So I told Dana about that and just told her to keep that in mind so that she doesn't feel frustrated if temporarily she may feel a little bit worse. And she did notice a bit more bloating. Otherwise, it wasn't too bad. And I assured her that it was definitely only temporary. Now, she felt better about halfway through the cleanse, which was at about the four week mark. And then after we finished the cleanse at eight weeks, her bloating completely subsided and her bowels were much more regular. Now, at this point, we added in a probiotic. We use something called orthobiotic by orthomolecular products. And this was 20 billion organisms. Now, 20 billion is not a super high amount, but on her stool test, her good guys were actually not too bad. So we didn't need to use something very strong. But in some cases, we may use things that may have 100 billion or even 200 billion colony forming units if we need a really strong one. It's very important to put back the good guys after cleansing out the bad so that all those empty places, if you will, where the bad were, we're now filling in with the good guy. So we're resetting the microbiome. And Dana was feeling a ton better by then. But we weren't finished yet. We had to put in the final and the most important step, which was healing the leaky gut. Because even though the bad guys were gone, if the leaky holes are still there, unless we heal them, foods that she was eating are going to continue to seep through and she's going to continue to be sensitive to them. So we used L-glutamine, which is great for tissue healing. And glutamine is very safe, and I typically recommend three to six grams. We use the powder version of glutamine because pills can only contain about eight to 900 milligrams. So to get to six grams, she would have to take six to seven pills. And it was much easier for her just to take two teaspoons and mix in a little bit of water, or she would mix it in her shake, and it made things a lot easier. And after two months of this, Dana was feeling completely better. She had regular bowel movements. She didn't experience any more urgency like she was before. At this point, she was still on a pretty strict diet. No gluten, no dairy, no corn, no soy or sugar. Since her gut was healing and she was feeling better, it was fine now to do food sensitivity tests to see which foods were truly sensitivities and not just everything that was leaking out because of the leaky gut. So we used a food sensitivity test from Viber in America, which is one of my favorite labs because they do such a good job with looking at the panels in a very comprehensive way. Dana came out sensitive to gluten and corn, but was fine with dairy and soy. So she introduced dairy and had no issues with it. I don't recommend that anyone eat a lot of soy just because of the estrogenic qualities of soy. So I asked her to keep that low, even though she wasn't technically sensitive to it. And for sugar, since sugar is food for the bad bugs, we continued to eat a diet that was lower in sugar. Dana didn't have to go crazy. She was fine with having fruit and some gluten-free desserts, but she kept those in check just because we wanted to prevent the bad bacteria from being fed by these sugars. And I always tell people that it's all about trying to do the best that you can, but it's not about being perfect. Dana didn't have to go crazy. She was fine with fruit and to have some gluten-free desserts, but she kept those in check and didn't overdo them to help prevent the bacteria from coming back. And I always tell people, we want to try to be as best as we can, but it's not about being perfect because there's no such thing as perfection. And honestly, trying to be perfect is 
really stressful. And then the stress of that is probably worse than eating a little bit of the food. So of course we can have some treats. We're all human, right? But it's just about keeping it balanced and in moderation. Dana was so excited to be feeling better. She never thought that complete relief was even possible. And I was so glad that I was able to get to the bottom of it for her. And for everyone listening, I hope that this explanation was also helpful for you so that you could see that there are specific reasons that create IBS. And so it's not about trying to find the magic medication or even the magic supplement. And people often ask me, well, what's the best enzyme or what's the best probiotic? But it's really about seeing how your specific digestion is functioning and then putting in the things that you need based on what's not working. This is also the reason why probiotics can be a godsend for some and do nothing for others. If someone has a ton of dysbiosis per se, just doing probiotics and not actually killing off the bad bugs really won't do that much. But if someone doesn't have many bad bugs and maybe just has very low of the good bacteria, then probiotics can be a huge help right away. We're all different. And so the answers are going to vary, But if you have IBS, looking at how the gut is working and fixing where the breakdowns are is really the key. If Dana sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. And if you guys like the show, I would so appreciate it if you can post a review on iTunes. I know it takes an extra second, but those ratings and reviews really help so this podcast is shown to more people so they too can see that the answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.